I bought a new dishwasher a couple years ago. I feel like we bought the Lamborghini of dishwashers, but really it just wasn't one that was 40 years old. It was thrilling once it was installed, um, and here's why. We would, put, uh, we would put dishes in it, we would press start, and the dishes would come out clean. And that's it. That, that was not the pattern that our previous dishwasher was giving us. But I was frustrated by something with this new Lamborghini dishwasher. I would, I would feel, fill the correct chamber. I want to be clear on that. I would fill the correct chamber with rinse aid from a bottle that claimed it would last for 400 washes. But then I would get a low rinse aid alarm after a week. A week. So I started to consider the problems I might be facing. I just, I just wanted to consider everything. And so I, I came up with three potential conclusions. One, the first one I thought of was there was deception on the rinse aid bottle. And I needed to prepare for battle with the company that produced it. False advertising. Uh, number two, perhaps we were doing like six loads of dishes a day. And then I needed to have a conversation with my family about this. And number three, something was wrong with my dishwasher, or at least not to my liking. And I needed to learn more about it to fix it. And that's what I ended up doing. Number three, I reread the instruction manual, and it finally intersected with what I was experiencing in my life. I had missed the whole section on factory settings and potentially needing to recalibrate the amount of rinse aid that was being dispensed. I, so I, I followed the instructions, pressed a couple buttons, felt like I had just cracked the matrix, <laughs> followed the text in front of me on recalibrating, and, and now my rinse aid dilemma is over and peace has descended upon my household. Yeah, yeah, it deserves an applause, absolutely. And really, it wasn't, it wasn't that much disruption, um, but it just, in my mind, it kept turning it over and over and over and over. And at least in, in my mental heart, I, I finally was able to figure out, oh, this was easy enough. There was actually nothing wrong. There are times we need to calibrate or recalibrate the tools we have. And, and after, I would say, a difficult stretch of time the last number of years, continuing to this day, we as Christ followers may need to adjust our settings. Fortunately, the Spirit of God is assigned the role of recalibrating those who are redeemed by Christ so that we can experience the amazing life that is intended for us. This is the journey of learning to live life by the Spirit. And in that life, we get to experience God's amazing transformative work. The Spirit will recalibrate us in a manner that will lead to outcomes or, or fruit that will please God and impact others. And I'm, I'm so grateful for this series. Recalibrate is our series, just a short study in the book of Galatians, focusing on the fruit of the Spirit. Well, my name is Nicholas Todd. I'm part of Pastor Tony's preaching team for this series. And today we explore gentleness. Before we pray together, let's read together what's on screen. This is Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Let's read out loud together. I'll begin. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Just like Pastor Tony last week on faithfulness, when he said it is the entirety of Scripture that bears witness to the faithfulness of God, it is the entirety of Scripture that bears witness to the gentleness of God. We'll take a journey through Scripture today as we explore gentleness as a fruit of the Spirit. Pray with me. God in heaven, I am grateful for this series, how it has pushed me into your word time and time and time again, and how how my life has been impacted by your word and by, by just being in community by being part of teaching, by being part of, of, of worship. Lord, I believe your Holy Spirit has, has convicted me of things, areas that I, I get to reflect upon and go another direction. And so, Lord, Lord, I pray that for everybody. Everybody in this room, whether it's in this room or on the radio, in their own room, if they're streaming, Lord, I, I pray that they take your word seriously. And Holy Spirit, Would you come here? Would you be with your people? Amen. In theological language, don't give me an answer yet. I'm going to ask twice. In theological language, what is the study of the person and work of the Holy Spirit called. Just think. It starts with a P. Again, what is the study of the person and works of the Holy Spirit called? Anybody? Shout it out. Pneumatology. <laughs> That's right. Pneumatology. Pneumatology. I know. I played you with the whole starts with a P thing. Uh, I did it on purpose. So, silent P. Pneuma. Pneuma. Pneuma is spirit or wind, and ology is the study of. And, and we have had just time and time again, as we've looked at the fruit of the spirit, little bits and pieces of pneumatology have been, have been flowing out. The point about the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the spirit, the whole point of Christian ethics is it means we are rehumanized. What I mean by that is that we are going back to the very beginning of what God intended for humanity. That we are made in the image of God. And we need to reject idolatry. Because, one, it diminishes God. And two, it diminishes those who bear God's image. Real quick, by a show of hands, who here bears God's image? All right, put your hands down. We're going to try this again. The answer is put your hand up. All right, here we go. So by a show of hand, who here bears God's image? Every hand, people. Every hand should go up with that. And so with Jesus Christ, with Christian ethics, with the Holy Spirit, it is such work that reestablishes humanity 
to what we were created to be. And this is what, what Paul writes about here. Paul addresses this here in Galatians 5 as we consider the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, Galatians. So in this moment, in this time, in, in, in this letter, Paul is defending himself from accusations from the church. Another way to put that, the church is accusing him of things. He also, he warns against devouring each other and reminds the Galatians that the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Pop quiz. What is the one statement that fulfills the whole law? I have it written down, so it's, I'm like the teacher with the answer. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul also continues to write, and he breaks down flesh living versus spirit living. I would love to think that this book would be irrelevant to us. Wouldn't that be great? But it isn't, because accusations are still delivered. Lives are mutilated. Church members attack church members. Witch hunts occur, we are indifferent to our neighbors, and we live by the flesh. When Pastor Matt spoke at the end of June on peace, he took some time to look at the works of the flesh as listed in Galatians 5, same chapter. This is starting in verse 19. Just, just listen. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not who we were created to be. Repeat after me. This is not who we were created to be. And believe that. These acts here are in sharp contrast to what we read together earlier in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. These flesh acts are all about self. They're all about the me. People that are involved in church will distinguish themselves from such a list. But hear me gently. You're guilty. I'm guilty. Let me, let me explain some of this because this is, this, is, this is quite the list. As I reflected on it, this is what, what came. Uh, sexual immorality. That is using another person to gratify one's own desires. Idolatry, witchcraft. It's trying to manipulate the world into the shape you want it to be. Hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. These are all about squaring off about battling against some other group for personal self-advancement. Drunkenness. This is an escape into a private world. 
And all of these are about the internal, they're about, they're about self. Through the fruit of the Spirit, we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Look at the list. It's on our screens. How many of them orient the Christ follower towards others? Again, the question is, how many of, of these fruit orient the Christ follower toward others? Now, some people are like, all of them. And, and you know what? I, I'm not ready to say that. Um, I went with five immediately. I thought, I want to count them up. My favorite. One, two, three, four, five. Easy. Almost no thought. And then I took another look and read through it. I thought, okay, at least six. And then I just stopped. It's an easy majority. And I think a justification can be made for all of them. Why does that even matter? Why does the call to be a complete human as God intended and the orientation of these fruits being outward expressions matter? 1 Peter 3, verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This is like a a power verse for an apologetics training course. I I have heard some zinger answers in my life um, as as you try to defend or even go on the offensive for the faith. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. It's good and know that and memorize that. I am not, however, the zingiest of individuals. But I do often think of amazing responses the next day. Is that anyone else? And these zingy responses, it's, it's a little too gotcha. It's not necessarily right. Still in 15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Here's the rest. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. My, my observations on this text in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16 is, is one, I'm not sure if there's going to be a two, but no, I started with one, so I'm stuck with two. Number one, apologetics is for everyone. Repeat after me, apologetics is for everyone. Let's, let's do this again. Apologetics is for me. Good. It is commonly considered that apologetics is arguments, evidence, reason, defense. And there's nothing wrong with those things. It, it involves ideas and reasonings and intellectual debate. But where does it turn wrong? I say apologetics turns wrong when it breaks down a relationship, and when it breaks down the potential for God to get the glory. We must address motive, spirit, and heart. When we practice the defending of the faith, when we practice apologetics, 
as disciples of Jesus, meaning Jesus is our teacher and we are practicing in the same manner as Jesus, apologetics becomes a, a helping ministry, not a fighting ministry. It becomes a helping ministry. We defend the faith to help people. So when you find a teachable heart to evangelize through the helping ministry of apologetics, you do it so that they might someday see that Jesus Christ is the master of the universe in which they live. And we intensely pray for them to recognize this. And we should long deeply for them to see this truth. Back to 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16. How should the defending of our faith be exercised according to it? With gentleness and respect. I had done some work in our previous series related to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We have the same word for meek that Paul uses for gentleness right here in the fruit of the Spirit. Different parts of speech, same word. Paul continues to use this word in other parts of Galatians. Meekness, gentleness, gentle, humility, humble, mild, moderate, forbearing. This is the spirit of the word as used in Matthew, Peter, and Pauline writing. And there's a lot on humility in scripture. Consider this small selection of texts. Emphasis is mine. Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. 1 Timothy 6.11. But you, man of God, flee from all this. This, sorry, I'm going to tell you what this is. Flee from all this. This is controversies, quarrels, envy, strife, evil suspicions, and using godliness for financial gain. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Titus 3, 1 through 8. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. James 3, 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good deeds. I'm sorry, by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Ephesians 4, 2. Yeah, Ephesians 4, 2. Be completely humble and gentle. We get both. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, for a longer text, I want to go to a piece of scripture that is shared in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And with three options to read from, I thought the healing of a paralytic would be best read from Dr. Luke. We're going to read Luke 5, 17 through 26. Please turn there. Luke 5, 17 through 26. I'll read, follow along. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. 
some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves. And real quick, anytime someone's thinking to themselves, it's usually a little evil. But we have it here. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which, Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Scripture says they're, they're in a house. And it's a high likelihood that this is, this is Peter's house. I'm not fighting that, but it's a house, and people believe it's Peter's house. And Jesus is doing what he is called to do, teach. And he has quite the audience. Pharisees and other teachers are there. They're listening. They're taking notes. They're asking questions. Some with hearts that want to learn, and others looking for a place to challenge or trap Jesus. I don't know that for sure, but that's the nature of groups getting together like that. So he teaches with authority when the ceiling starts to fall. Do you ever hear sounds in your home and just start wondering, what is that? What kind of work would it take to dig through the roof? What tools do you think they had? I mean, they had to, they had to have them. Did it crumble on Jesus and those that were in that conversation circle? Were some upset that they were getting dirty by the roof rubble? If this was Peter's home, how do you think he felt about his roof? So the problem was that this group that was listening to Jesus, this group overflowed outside the door, so it blocked off the door. People couldn't get any closer. And Jesus' ministry was to teach, but people had already seen him heal physically, and, and his power, his authority, by voice, removed demons that were infiltrating people. So a group, not able to get in, climb a roof, dig a hole in the roof large enough to lower somebody down, stretcher and all. Like, this isn't just like, like, this isn't like 18 inches, and they're like, well, how big is the guy? Let's see what we can do. It's, this is huge. And they do it all in front of Jesus. And notice the text in verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. This this struck me as I was reading through it. it. It wasn't the faith of the paralytic. It was the faith of the friends that causes Jesus to respond. That's wild. 
Your sins are forgiven because of your friend's faith. Okay, so then we sneak into the mind of the other Pharisees and teachers. They're thinking to themselves. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. He had sat with them for a time. I don't think this is their first time, but Jesus is hospitable enough. He, he's invited them in. They've probably broken bread together. They've been together. So he had become some level of an expert on who they were. He had related with them. He had interacted with them. And then this catalytic moment arrives. Always look for those catalytic moments in your life. This moment was the roof being dug out and someone being dropped in front of them. This gave opportunity for Jesus to challenge something deeper, to move that needle ever so slightly towards a more complete truth. And he asks a question as every good rabbi might. Questions and answers. Questions and answers. Or questions as answers. He says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? And this is a good one. Which is easier? No one answer this. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk to a paralyzed man? It's a trap. Now, this is the Jesus trap. Traps are often set for Jesus. Mark 12 that's a trap about taxes. John 8 is a trap about the law of Moses. Matthew 19 is a trap with divorce. Traps set to catch Jesus. But this is different. Jesus laid this one with a motive to address their hearts for something bigger. Again, don't answer this, even though I'm asking the question. What do you say, church? Which is easier? You as a person to go to someone and say, your sins are forgiven? Or for you to go to someone who can't walk and say, get up and walk? Both are impossible under human power. It's an impossible question. Having already said your sins are forgiven, Jesus doubles down and tells the man to get up and go home. This, Jesus gave, gave an, an either or, and he did them both. He doubles down, tells the man to get up and go home. The fruit of this interaction, a healed man, sins forgiven, celebrate that. But the fruit of this interaction is why we must learn from this. Sins forgiven, body healed, everyone gave praise to God. Everyone praised. Everyone gave glory to where glory was due. Everyone. Only in one place do we hear Jesus himself open up to us about his heart. This is Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the heart that should define and direct us as Christ followers. Who could have ever thought that the defining characteristic of the Messiah, Savior of the world, Defender of the weak, Raiser of the dead, Exorcist of demons, Healer of the blind, Sufferer on the cross, Man who rose from the dead himself would be gentle. 
I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus' impact on the globe is not in spite of his gentleness. It's because of his gentleness. What about us? Gentleness is not just a personality trait. This is a piece that begin to kind of challenge you. You hear gentleness and you go, oh, I'm not a gentle person. I have heard before, men aren't gentle. It's a lie. This is a problem because God calls every follower of Jesus to be gentle. Every single one. It doesn't matter what your personality is. Now, gentleness, it isn't a lack of emotion. It isn't a lack of weakness. So what is gentleness? I want to build off of Pastor Randy. Pastor Randy, a couple weeks ago, shared that patience is the ability to endure hostility and criticism without anger. And following the same pattern... Gentleness is the ability to endure hostility and criticism without aggression. Gentleness is the ability to endure hostility and criticism without aggression. This is not... I can't say everybody, but I will say, it sounds very sweeping, but the most common attitude I encounter of defending the faith creates a, a, an us on the inside versus them on the outside. And internally, it is just as easily an us versus us. And what I love about gentleness is it becomes a journey of we learning together, defending the faith internally or externally in a spirit of gentleness means that however firm we may be in our convictions, we don't become overbearing, we don't become hostile, and we don't become defensive. However firm we may be in our convictions, we remain civil. Os Guinness, a writer, current Anglican, fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, shares about civility. He said that civility is too easily dismissed as simple niceness or even squeamishness. Worse, it is seen as unwillingness to contend for what is right. And he goes on to say that's not true. That is not what civility is. That is not what gentleness is. Civility has to do with how you interact and express yourself. It is not a refusal to criticize. Uncivil debate, uncivil critique makes no attempt to genuinely persuade the opposition. When it's uncivil, when it's ungentle, it becomes more about being right. I am right and you are wrong. Another way to put this, I care little about who is before me as an image of God because the most important thing to me is that I am right and you know it. We create images, jokes, caricatures 
exaggerations about the people we disagree with, often even to their faces. But that doesn't win anybody to a higher truth, to the higher truth we aim for as lived out and given to us through Jesus Christ. Uncivil, ungentle interaction only marginalizes and it disempowers the people we're talking with. When we interact in this manner, we might say our heart is right. I believe that's what someone said, my heart is right. I'm defending something. But the kind of speech we use is designed to intimidate, to silence, and to stir up opposition. It does not aim to persuade more people to believe in the risen Lord. And ironically, when Christians speak this way, it shows no confidence in the truth at all but only in power. And that is a very, very secular view of the world that is not a Christian view of the world. So by contrast, what does Christian civility and gentleness look like in such situations? First, it shows respect for persons that are made in the image of God, even as it argues that their views and positions are not worthy to be called true. Again, Christian civility and gentleness shows respect for persons that are made in the image of God even as it argues that their views and positions are not worthy to be called true. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. This is James 3, 9. A shocking warning against Christ followers wishing ill on these people. Second, civility and gentleness shows humility as you argue. That means a lack of eye rolling. That means a lack of breathing. It means a lack of body language. And it means a lack of, of, of ugly vocabulary used to insult those that do not yet know God. I remember in debate one time someone gave me the zingiest of insults. Now, you can't outwardly insult someone in debate, but, but they managed it somehow, and I took a note on it to remember forever. They said that only someone with my level of naivety would think of such a solution. I always had to say to only someone with that level of naivety. Oh, he just insulted me. The judges are okay with it. What on earth? Wrote it down, always remembered it. But that's the language where it's ugly. It's right below the surface. And you wonder, is, is is this actually, I don't think this person's being nice. So show humility as you argue. Do you desire for people to know God? I am hearing some voices. I want you to answer out loud in your head, which I feel I understand how that doesn't work out. Do you desire for people to see God? So let's be gentle with, the, with those who don't yet see or know. Finally, third, civility and gentleness means we have to follow some rules. Don't attribute an opinion to someone that will not, they will not personally own for themselves. 
Again, don't attribute an opinion to someone that they will not personally own for themselves. Even if you think it's the logical outcome of their, of their views, clearly you think blah, 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 blah. It, it, don't do it. Don't tell them what they think. Ask questions. Study their opinion. Work to state their position as positively as possible. Let them be disarmed by, by such a gentle spirit, by such an understanding that when you explain their position, they respond with, uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. Then and only then do you proceed to talk. And we need to recalibrate as we engage with a world that doesn't line up with our expectations or with our ethics. Some time ago, a ladybug landed on my arm, and I was all like, oh, this is amazing. Look how cute this ladybug is. And then the little monster bit me. <laughs> Made me squeal like a pig, and then no one believed me that ladybugs could even bite. Thank goodness there was a bite mark, so I could prove it. In response, I thumped it away as hard as I could, silently hoping that the initial impact with my finger would end its life. <laughs> Not exactly gentleness. Remember my dishwasher and the rinse aid dilemma? The first thing I thought was that the industry was out to get me. There was deception on the rinse aid bottle, and I needed to prepare for I needed to put on the gloves so that when I got to the company, I, I could really go at it. Wait, how silly, how silly of me to think that to have such personal aggression towards a group I did not understand or know anything about. And this feels like the pattern that I have taken, that I know others have taken in society. Something happens to us that we believe needs to be addressed, and it probably does. And then we work to address it, but it comes out as anger. It comes out as paranoia. It comes out as an attack and hostility. And a story is created that makes them an opponent instead of someone created in the image of God. The interaction that Jesus had with others in Luke 5, Jesus sat with them, they listened, he listened, he knew their hearts before he questioned them. He engaged them in a way that Luke 5, 26 says, Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Everyone. It didn't say just the people that were on Jesus' side gave praise to God. Everyone. I pray we pursue Christ. I pray we invite the Spirit to work in our lives. And I pray we give glory to the Father. In all of this, in all of this, the takeaway is not to be more gentle. The takeaway is to walk more humbly with your God. In the humble walk with God, there is the potential, potential that you will recognize your own poverty of mind, your own poverty of soul and your own positive, poverty of body, and then an internal reflection and pursuit of God's fruit, gentleness, becomes your grace filled response to people outside these walls and inside these walls. After I pray, we're going to have a short time of reflection. I encourage you to think of all the fruit of the Spirit, to think of your walk with God, to take a step 
towards a deeper relationship. We have a, we have a communication card. It's in our bulletin. If, if as you're praying, as you're thinking, if something rises up in you, write it down. Consider sharing it with us because we will join you in prayer through this week. Church, let me encourage you to put down your gloves. The battles you're facing when you feel surrounded, be completely humble and gentle. And remember that the battle belongs to the one who conquered death. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, develop in me, my family, the church's leadership, and the the people here in this room listening on the radio or watching, people who have been here in the past, who, who are here now in the present and will come in the future, would you develop in all of us the desirable fruit of gentleness? In our time of prayer, would we be in tune to you? Would you open our minds to your holy presence and to the work the word has called us to? Surrounded, but I'm surrounded. 
to stand together. If gentleness is going to characterize our church, then we need the Lord. a communication card during the response time. As you leave today, consider dropping it with us if you would let us join you in that. 
There are baskets at the exit doors. You know, we also have uh, the encounter room. So if you would like to pray with somebody today, if you would like to worship with them in prayer, if you would... If you want to hurt with somebody, they are there to sit with you as, just as much as I will remain here after the service to talk with anybody. Through this week, consider using the Engage Guide. We have reflection questions that are designed to stir just additional thoughts about what next. Let's go with this benediction. In response to anger, be gentle. In response to boasts, be humble. In response to slander, offer prayers. In response to errors, be steadfast in your faith. In response to cruelty, be civilized. Do not be eager to imitate such anger, boasts, slander, error, and cruelty. Let us show by our gentleness that the unbelieving had been made in the image of God. Let us be eager to be imitators of the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week as we finish our series.